Let's turn to God's word. Uh, We're in the first letter of John and chapter 4. And I'm going to read from verse, this morning from verse 17, sorry, verse 7 to verse 16. Verse 7, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, and reading through to verse 16. Have a, a church Bible, it's page 1868. This is God's word. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. May God bless his word to us this morning. Well, it's the first part of what we read from John's first letter that I'm going to be bringing to you this morning from verse 7 of 1 John 4 through to verse 11. Sometimes there are aids to understanding the scripture, often there are, which are are built into the structure and if you, you study the structure of what you're looking at, you find you can understand it better. Let me explain that from two things that are here. In verses 7 to 12 of 1 John 4, you have the word love 14 times. In verse 16 on to chapter 5 and verse 3, you have the word love 18 times. This section is about love. But also, within that, and this occurs often in the scriptures, you have what you might call bookends. You have verses where something similar to a verse a few before is stated, and then you think, yes, the bit in the middle is the sort of the meat in the sandwich. It works here, let me illustrate, from the passage after the one we're looking at where we read in verse 12, no one has ever seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. And then verse 16, and we know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in God abides in love and God in him. You see the similarity of thought. That is a little section and so is this section from verses 7 to 11. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So it's this little section on love that we're considering this morning. This is a theme, of course, John has dealt with before. In chapter 2, he's talked about the command of love, verse 7. A new commandment which I give to you. But it's not new. You've had it from the beginning. And he's speaking of love for one another. Love for fellow Christians. Love for brothers. In chapter 3, right from verse 10, at the end of it, right through to verse 24, it was about love. Love as the evidence of having spiritual life. Love is the evidence of being born of God, of being a child of God, of belonging to God. Love not to the world, love not to God, love to one another as the evidence of true belief, of true being truly God's, of God working in us, of being born of his spirit. Here the emphasis is this really in terms of ourselves it's on the evidence of God's presence. Where God is, love is. And therefore we can call this passage loving with God's love. And in order to understand what we must do in love, we have to understand what God has done for us in love. That's the way John works. He says, you've got to love. If you belong to God, you should love like God. Well, how did God love? And that's what we're looking at this morning. So I've picked on three phrases, really, to give us three points of unequal length uh, this morning. And the first covers verses 7 and 8. The phrase is, let us love. Beloved, let us love one another. It's an exhortation, isn't it? And as with all exhortations in the scripture, there's two things that that means. If we have something that's exhorted or commanded, it means two things. It means, first of all, it's not automatic or you won't be exhorted. And secondly, it must mean it's possible, or God wouldn't exhort us to do it. So we are being told you're not necessarily going to be loving one another as you should. I would think it would be very bold for anyone to say that they do that. But, but, but you can. Let us do it. It's got to be our desire to love other believers, and that is the stress, isn't it? Beloved, let us love one another. Fellow Christians... We are to love one another with with the love with which God has loved us. Love one another. You remember how the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of the test of love, as he said of himself, and how we are to respond. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus says, you should love one another like I have loved you. Here John is saying you should love one another like God has loved you. It's the same thing. And so he goes on to say, "For uh, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This love he's speaking of is a supernatural love. It's not a natural love. It's not something you can whip up within anybody. It's the love which comes from being born of God which comes from God indwelling us. It's the love which is the fruit of the Spirit. Because this love of which he speaks is from God, of God. And everyone who loves with this kind of love, this mutual love between Christians, is is born of God and knows God. John has said in chapter 3 and verse 14, we know we have passed 
from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. So if we do love with this love, it's evidence that God has worked in us by the new birth, by his spirit, and we are now born again of God, and therefore we know God. What is eternal life, Jesus says, to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the life that is God's life, which we enter into, by the new birth, into the new life. And the new life is marked by knowing God, knowing the God who is love, and therefore is going to be marked by showing that love. Conversely, verse 8, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. He who is a stranger, the person who is a stranger to loving like this, who, who says, well, these, these Christians, these are people I hate, or who says, these Christians, they're really odd lot. I'm going to try not to have anything to do with them as much as I possibly can. You know, we've got one of them in our workplace and I try to keep away from him or her. These people who say, people moving upwards from hatred uh, through avoidance to complete indifference. Uh, People who would say, well, you say, who do you want to mix with? Who do you like being with? Who do you, there's more to love than that, but let's start at that level. Who is it that you have this natural feeling in your heart towards? And many, many people would have to say, whatever they answer, they say, oh, it's not Christians. They might say it's the people I play rugby with, or, or it's this or that or the other. But no, we should be those who say, well, my natural gravitation is towards Christians and towards them because I love them. That, as I say, there's more than love than the feeling, but we'll come to that. He who is a stranger to loving God's people as God's people is a stranger to God. Verse 10 of chapter 3. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. However much someone might know about God, they do not know God if the evidence of love to fellow believers is not there. And the reason for this is this great simple statement for God is love. There's a sentence, that, a phrase that occurs uh, twice in the passage that we read. And here it is for the first time, the first time in this letter. You go back to chapter 1 and verse 5 and you have after the introduction, which is a very important introduction, but you have... This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. John had to start there and he starts with God being light, starts with God being holy and so holy that there is no darkness in God. This is the true God. But now, three chapters later, he has this other great definition of God. God is love. These then, light... Holiness, purity, and love, purity within himself and love outwardly, are essential attributes of God. They are of the essence of God. And we know that because we look at what the Bible teaches of God. It teaches he is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. 
If you go on to verses 13 and 14, you have a marvellous illustration of that, don't you? We know we abide in him and he in us, God, because he has given us of his spirit. There's the Father, there's the Spirit, and we know and have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Saviour of the world. There's the Son in three ver- two verses, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But it, but it permeates the whole of the New Testament, doesn't it? It certainly permeates this letter. And so when we think of the God of whom John is speaking, when he says God is love, we are thinking of a God who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and, and it has to be like this, to be essentially love, because love is an interpersonal thing. Love in its fullness can only be possible where there is more than one person, and I would argue that there has to be at least three persons. Because you can have two people who love one another, think obviously of a father, uh, of a man and wife, and then they have a child. And they can love that child. And they can mutually love that child. They can mutually delight in loving that child. Now they might have 20 children. Uh, not recommended. Uh, and uh, <laughs> not experienced by me. And uh, so I can't recommend it. And, but that doesn't actually alter the, the basic, does it? The st- that's another one. Another one in the same relationship. But there's the relationship. One parent, another parent and a child. And that love, there's love that can be seen between three that can't even be seen between two. Now, I am not saying that the Trinity is like a father and a mother and a child, all right? I'm just showing how it is that, that love is between others and the mutual delight. Incidentally, do you realise if you're a family, if you're a husband and a wife, you're not blood relations, but when you have a child, you become blood relations of each other. That's an aside, but it's worth thinking about that. You also become blood relations with your mother-in-law, but that's another aside. Let's go back. You see, the point about this is God is love. This God who we worship, this God who is the true and living God, is not a mono, a, 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 a person on his own. Not like Allah. Not like the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses who will come round to trying to persuade you that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. He can't be like that because the concept of love would be impossible to such a God if he could exist, which he doesn't. And therefore in the Quran, love is not mentioned because there is no concept in Islam of a God of love. There can't be because who can, how can a God who is just him and there is not that multiplicity of persons in his being who have known that love from all eternity for one another, how can such a God even think of love, conceive of love? No, God is a God in whom there is love between Father and Son and Holy Spirit from all eternity. And God is love. And therefore God can create creatures and love them. And that's what he does. And John is saying, therefore, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Where this holy God, this God who is light and love, is in the soul, there will love be. Where this holy God who is light as well as love is in the church, there will love be. What sort of love? Second phrase. 
This is love. That's the beginning of verse 10, but we're looking at verses 9 and 10. What, what sort of love are we talking about? Well, here we are. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us. That's a favourite word of John's, isn't it? I think this is the sixth occasion he's used this word manifested or revealed. He's talked of the Son being revealed. He talked of false teachers being revealed. He's talked of the children of God and the children of the devil being revealed, manifested. Now he's talking of God's love. How do we see it, he says, in this world? How in this world of sin... And so much misery and so much hatred and so much opposition to God and to each other. How do we see? How do we see the love of God? In this the love of God was, note the past tense, manifested toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. He's going to say more in verse 10. But that's the first, uh, first half of John's answer. How do we see the love of God? He sent his only begotten son. John 3.16 says, doesn't it? God so loved the world, he gave, which has overtones of sacrifice, gave his only begotten son. So we'll come to that in verse 10. But the John 3 and verse 17 talks about God having sent his son into the world. This is the standard of perfect love. What already was in the Godhead, is seen by men. God always was love. And we see this love because he sent his only begotten son into this sinful world and he did it in order that we might live through him. Which we're going to see about how that happens in the next verse in a moment. But there are two parts, aren't there? Then? There is the incarnation. There is Christ being sent into the world. And then there is in order that. In order that. Why did God send his world, why, son into the world? Cure Deus homo, as, as Anselm said. Well, why Christmas? Well, why did it happen? That we might live through him. Well, how can we live through him? How does God sending his son into the world bring life? It's not true, is it? Man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. No, some men will love for, live forevermore because of, East, because of Good Friday, if you want to put it like that. And that's what John goes on to say here in verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, why? To be the propitiation for our sins. This is the standard, says John, of perfect essential love not that we love God we hated God by nature the essential love that he speaks of is the God the love of God which meant that he loved us so much that he gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins if you were here last Sunday evening you would have heard me speaking on God the propitiation amongst other things let's remember though what it means again it means the one who died in our place bearing God's wrath so that it doesn't fall on us. So that God is propitiated, made favourable to us. God giving his son, John 3.16. Romans 8 and verse 32, God has, who gave us his only son. God providing the sacrifice of his own son. To die on the cross so that the wrath of God due to us 
fell on him so that we do not bear it. And that is God's love. He to rescue us from danger, we're saying of Christ, don't we interpose his precious blood. And this is then God's perfect love. God's perfect love is seen in this way. And it is then to be seen in our love to one another. That is why we're being told these things, isn't it? We could stop at verse 10. We could just think of verse 10. We could, as our second hymn says, be lost in verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But that is not John's purpose here. That is not God's purpose in his word then here for us here this morning. This love is to be seen in one another. We are to learn from God. We are to learn from God of how to love fellow Christians. Beloved, verse 7, let us love one another for love is of God. This love of God which sent his son to die on the cross, to bear our sin in his own body on the tree. This love is to be seen amongst us. This is what we are to learn. And what sort of love is it that sent the son of God to die upon the cross for our sins? Four things we say this is, uh, under this point. The first is this, isn't it? It is a love which does. It is a love which does, which acts. It is a love which does and not just feels. Although, of course, there is feeling here. There is a moving of the soul in our love. People say, oh, love is not just an emotion. Well, that's true. They will say that love is not an emotion. That's false. We have... The soul is one, but we can divide its working. And we can say we have, as believers, we will have by God's Holy Spirit at work within us an affection, that's a theological term, uh, toward one another. A moving of the soul, which means, therefore, that in our emotions, as we see needs, as we meet with people, as we hear of their needs, there is an emotion of, of desire to help. And therefore the will is moved. And therefore we do something for that person. An emotion which leads to action. That is love. It's true in a human sense, isn't it? If you say you love someone and you say it truly, there is an ongoing affection. And then when you see their need, you help them. And that's what God has done. He saw our need and he helped us because he loved us. He'd set that love on us from before the foundation of the world. You go back and say why, you can't answer that question. But God has loved us and sent his son. He loved us so much that he sent his son to bear the wrath. Instead, the son of God bears the wrath of the father. And so it's action. Love is action. Love acts. It does, not just feels. Secondly, it does everything that it possibly can that is necessary. The Lord Jesus Christ came into the world not just as an example, though he is an example of loving God and serving God. I always do what pleases him, says Christ. 
He is a great, came as a great teacher. No man taught like this. Absolutely true. He came as a martyr. We can use that word. He died on the cross because wicked men nailed him there for asserting the truth. But it's not enough, is it? He did what was necessary to deliver our souls from sin and to deliver us from sin and to bring us to God and so that our sins might be forgiven and we might have eternal life. Love, then, as we think of our love to one another, it does what is needed. It does, thirdly, all that is necessary for those who deserve the opposite. That's what God's love in Christ does for us. And our love is towards each other and we are imperfect people and we act imperfectly toward one another and sadly possibly can act nastily toward one another and we the love god if we love with god's love we still love we love in a way where we enhance and repair broken relationships it was said of Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, <clears throat> do my Lord of Canterbury an ill deed and he will be your friend for life. He would find the people who were acting badly towards him and he would seek to show love to them. Well, we might not be able to do that to the whole world, but we can at least try to do it here. And to love each other, whatever, whatever others do. For this is a love, fourthly, that does, that does, that acts, and it does at infinite cost. Whatever the cost may be, we show the love. If we can, I'm going to come back to that point, because we are not like God, and we are not infinite, and we cannot do everything. I'll come to that in a moment. But the heart's desires should be there. And they should work out as they can be towards all God's people. And that leads to our third point. The third phrase, we ought to love. Here it is, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Three phrases, let us love. This is love, we ought to love. Not so what, God has so loved us, so what? No, God has so loved us, so love. That is the point. This is the inescapable conclusion. It is a, a, a moral imperative. We love why? Because this little word which we can pass over, which John gave at the beginning of verse 7 and gives at the beginning of verse 11 again, beloved. Beloved of God. Beloved of one another. We have been loved. We are being loved by God. God's love did not just finish at the cross. We are being loved. We are the beloved of God. We must be the beloved of one another. We have no right not to love. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We live in a society where oughts are dropping out, aren't they? It's becoming all about my rights. It's becoming about what people must do for me and what they mustn't do which I don't like. And the Christian church has a wonderful opportunity in such a sad society to be a society to be those who stand up for that so neglected word duty and ought and I do it because it's right and there's concept that's getting lost in the world to do what is right 
Well, we should do what is right. And what is right is we should love one another continuously because love is not a response to an experience. How have they treated me? Love is a a response to a truth. This is my brother. This is my sister. God has loved them as he has loved me in order to deliver me from sin. And we are one. We're in the same body. We are the same body. You see, God's love to us is not to be merely contemplated, but it's to be incarnated, made flesh within us. Now, when you use words like that, alarm bells ring in some people. And rightly, because it's a word that's been awfully misused. And and liberal theologians used to talk about the incarnation in a way where what they're really saying is, oh, well, yes, just be nice to each other, uh, because Jesus came into the world and, and he was just good to everyone. And, and it's not true. It's not true that the, the, this sort of woolly Christ of whom they speak, he's not real. Jesus came and said some very severe things when he needed to do so. He spoke of hell, he spoke of the wrath of God. But the point is this. We are still to be those in whom God's love is seen and actively seen in this dark world of sin. And how? Well, it's through contemplating. I said God's love is not to be merely contemplated, but incarnated. But that it's only incarnated if it is contemplated. That's what John is doing here. He's saying, think about God's love and therefore go and love others like that. It's not just cold charity, is it? It's not just go and do your duty. How are we going to love one another? We have to be continuously in the contemplation of God's love to us. The early monks gave the wrong answer to a right question. The right question is, how in this world of sin can I, who love Christ, live for him? And they said, well, what we do is we separate ourselves behind some big stone walls and we spend a lot of time in contemplation. And then, this is the early and the best monks, and then we go out and we serve the world. We don't just stay behind the walls. Now, they got it wrong because (laughs) God does not say live in monasteries, celibate people. He says live in churches. And be a people who, yes, come within the walls and contemplate and, and go out then and love. But more, in Christian terms, he's saying this, isn't he? Spend your time as much as you can, individually, in the contemplation of God's love to you. And if you do it rightly, not selfishly, It will send you back into the community of God's people, not just in this church, and it was, but in the whole world, and it will send you out in love, in God's love, as you contemplate the love of God to you. If you're not loving each other as you should be, it may be it's because you're not thinking enough about God's love to you. You see, that's where the monks sort of got it right, wasn't it? You have to spend a lot of time thinking about God's love to you if you're going to truly love others with that love. If you forget the depth, 
If you forget the intensity, if you forget the wonder, if you forget the glory of God's love at the cross for you, delivering you from sins, you are not going to love your brothers and sisters as you ought to do. Now let me have two practical things to say here before we come to a conclusion. Two barriers in people's minds. There will be others. Sometimes Christians get frustrated. I can't do for others what I once did. And that's true. As you get older, perhaps, or more infirm. Well, what you need to do if that thought comes into your mind, yes, is avoid, which is true, is avoid Satan's condemnatory trap of saying, therefore, you're not as good a Christian as you were five years ago because you're not doing as much as you used to. It's nonsense, isn't it? We do what we can. There was the woman who anointed the Lord before his burial, before his death. She did what she could. Don't beat yourself up for not doing what you can't do. Especially for not doing what you used to do but can't do any more. You can't do what you did. And then the second trap. Looking at other people and saying they could do more loving, couldn't they? And become judgmental. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't think, what are, the, what are they, where, are they, where, are they, where are they lacking in practical love? Think about yourself. To their own master, they will stand or fall. You think about yourself. You've got enough time to think about how much you're showing love to your fellow Christians without worrying about how much they're not. So let's come to a conclusion. If we are going to love one another as we should, in a way which shows, in a way which makes a difference, in a way which is evident, in a way which is real. It is essential that we have right views of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is essential that we have right views of the achievement of that cross. If we think less of it than God says, the interposition of his son to bear God's wrath on our sins so that we are free from condemnation. If we have lesser views than that, we will not understand fully the love of God. This is the crucial thing, isn't it? God the Father sends the Son, gives him for us. He dies on the cross in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice, penal substitution. If you go back from that, you have inadequate views of the love of God. Some people who would deny that truth and then they try to teach that somehow the cross is an exhibition of God's love and they can't do it. They get in terrible tangles. Of course they do. How is it that if God, if Jesus Christ is not the son of God, how is it that the love of God is seen in punishing the son for our sin? Now we have to have right views of, of the achievement of the cross and of the motive of the cross. It is for us. He died. There it is in verse 10. Sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There it is in verse 9. In this the love of God was manifested toward us. Verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us. 
God's sovereign, elective love set upon you and me. Why? We don't know. But we have to revel in it. And we have to contemplate it much. And therefore it becomes the wellspring of our living in the community of sinners whom God has made his people, his beloved, and knit together in one body to show him, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, says Jesus, because of your love for one another. We need to see then how precious each other are in God's sight. It's good to sit and think how precious I am in God's sight and what a wonder that he should love a wretch like me. But sit and think also how precious are these my brothers and sisters in God's sight. And yes, what a wonder he should love them too. And then go out and gladly love them and do for them what they need as you can. And therefore, beloved, if God so loved us, yes, we also ought to love one another. But we also ought to delight in loving one another.